your host, Christine Marie Mason, yogi, author, mama, founder, someone who's interested in how we wake up together and find more freedom. This is the Rose Woman podcast, where each week we offer something that takes us from taboo to liberation. And today we are liberating ourselves from family stories. This episode is the first in a series on inherited family patterns and collective trauma, a primer that introduces some basic concepts that I'll play with in the next couple of episodes. I'm summarizing from my own training and experience working in the transformative justice program in California's prisons, working on the inherited stories women carry through Rosebud Woman, and the profound and life-changing work of my teacher for many years, Thomas Hubel, as well as the great mystics of all the ages. What I know about unhelpful family patterns and stories is that while the pain and suffering that they bring is not your fault, it is your responsibility. Or let me say, it's not my fault, it's my responsibility to make the most of this particular life by becoming aware of them, shifting them in myself, and not spewing them onto my kids, my lovers, or even strangers in the culture. Whatever's going on inside of us, that's what manifests in the systems and institutions we create. If we unwind our thoughts, freedom follows. So let's get into it. The basic principles of collective trauma and collective healing. Traum, or wound in Greek, happens when cultural, family, and individual experiences overwhelm our nervous system, when things are just too much to take. It's not inherent in any one experience, but in the response to the experience. And those responses differ based on individual or collective coping mechanisms and skill sets, experiences, and even epigenetic inheritances. What I mean is that, for example, with grief, if I, if I know how to process grief, great. If I have a religious or a cultural method of processing grief, then I'm more likely to get through it pretty easily. But if there's no framework into process grief, I might stuff that down in my body and then live with the aftermath for years. So that's what I mean by responses can differ. And then trauma, it can appear at the individual level. Like I have a car accident, but that car accident could be individually processed, cleanly felt and processed, or it could be stuffed down in my body and like I have a whiplash and then I carry that memory in my body forever. But many traumas, in fact, I would say all traumas on some level aren't unique to individuals, but shared human experiences. Things like war, cultural oppression, racial injustice, violence, dislocation, and scarcity. These all live in the collective frame. While they happen in the individual body, they also happen in the space between us and in the culture. So do healthy things in healthy societies like safety and belonging and abundance. Those experiences also live in the individual and in the collective. But I would say that even things that appear as individual experiences can be seen through a collective lens or a system lens. So let's go take the example of the individual trauma of being the direct victim of a crime. Like I, my family, my mom was killed and you would think that it would just be about our family, her as the victim, and then the person who was the perpetrator. But you can look through this as a, through the complex dimensions of a society that produces criminals, 
And you can look at how the crime doesn't just affect the victim and the victim's immediate family, but all of their relations. And how when something like that happens, the contractions in the individual people then result in larger systems that are built to keep people safe. That a crime done to one individual expands and impacts the way our security systems work and our police forces work, etc. It also affects all the criminals' relations in subtle and direct ways. Like, you know, if somebody goes to prison, they leave behind children who are then abandoned, and then there's a whole sort of network effect of that abandonment on those kids. So I would say that even what looks like an individual trauma is collective trauma at some level. I also want to speak to shock and developmental traumas and how they differ. The range of damage caused and the emotions that each of the, these two different kinds of traumas elicit can be very different. So the predominant emotion resulting from shock trauma is fear. And the predominant emotion arising from attachment trauma, for example, is shame or anxiety. Collective traumas also fall into these, the category of developmental or shock trauma. So war or natural disaster is a shock trauma. You're just sitting there and then all of a sudden, you know, a tornado comes and takes the roof off your house. That's a very different impact on the body than chronic poverty or systemic racism where you're in a hyper aroused state in your nervous system all the time. Uh, chronic traumas or stressors upregulate or intensify the nervous system's um, activation over, over often years, often, maybe even a lifetime. And that really shifts the way you frame the world. So my teacher, Thomas, says that trauma adaptations are protective intelligences. So you're naturally coming into life with this life force that is pure and clear and that the impact of trauma causes you to sort of maneuver and twist your activity and your belief to meet the environment that you're in. And so if belonging means you have to pervert your behavior or your thought pattern in some way, then you will do that, but you lose sort of that pure connection to your own essence in the adaptation. Uh, so trauma adaptations are protective intelligences. Yes, it freezes the experience in the physical body and creates psychic and behavioral adaptations that are designed to help you or help me avoid a similar experience in the future. So that adaptation can cause me to contract or shut down to protect myself. And while they are intelligences or survival mechanisms, and sometimes they allow for short-term self-protection, they come at a cost. Uh, for example, a child who grows up in a home which doesn't tolerate failure of any kind will learn to perform and strive to be accepted and loved while internalizing a sense of not enoughness or shame. And this shame might in turn create fear of taking risks or doing things wrong. Another example of this adaptation might be if you are physically abused as a child or as a young person, you often learn how to dissociate from your own body, like leave your, your mind kind of goes somewhere else while you're being abused. And so if it's too much overwhelm to feel in the body during the time of when the abuse is happening, you just kind of check out which later in life can turn into not being able to feel their body even when harm is no longer happening. We can see how the initial adaptation was a short-term intelligence, escape the pain, escape the abuse, but long-term it becomes unhelpful for self-contact. 
A part of the person is then fragmented off and living in the past. New experiences that come that remind them of that will hit that trauma and bounce off of that old place, intensifying or triggering old experiences, which can intensify all of these trauma-related sufferings. And you know what, what I was saying in the introduction, trauma-related suffering is contagious. Not only is it happening in your mind, your body, your spirit, in your relationships and the culture, not only is it living inside of us as individuals, it's sitting in the field between us. It goes across time and space and it's passed between generations. So what is not healed in one generation is passed on as energetic imprints, behavioral modeling, and the repetition of traumatizing acts. And this sort of experience of, of trauma becomes normalized over time. That's just the way humans are. That's just the way we are. Thomas has a great line. He says, unprocessed trauma is a reality distortion field. The trauma that's not integrated takes people out of the present. A part of us still is in the past on a time delay. We literally have trouble seeing things as they are in the now or processing information in the clarity of the current moment because we are seeing it through the biased lens of our accumulated adaptations. And these adaptations, these reactions, these trigger responses affect all of our relationships. So if I'm carrying a trauma, I visit it on everyone I relate to and on the collective. And if traumatized people are in power, they are designing systems to protect themselves from their original trauma. And many, many violences are reenactments of this. Jacques Verdun, who uh, founded the Inside Out Prison Project that I was part of in the California State Prisons, teaches that hurt people hurt people and healed people healed people. And you know what that says to me? that each of us is incredibly powerful in our ability to transform the world's current response mechanisms by doing the healing work in ourselves and in our group, families and communities. So the good news is that healing is also collective. There remains a part of us that was never affected by the trauma, a part that is always striving toward growth in the same way plants always turn toward sunlight. Well, some plants, like sunflowers, do you know that they're heliotropic? Helio, sun, tropic to turn. So, you know, let us turn toward the light. It's springtime here, so, you know, feeling into that. No matter the circumstances, I believe that people and systems can heal and can become whole and integrated again. And most importantly, this can be done together as a collective in an exponential one-to-many manner. Thomas says this, everybody I know who sees effective work happening in the world, we don't have to do it alone. We don't have to heal alone. We don't have to build the garden alone. We don't have to build the company alone. And in our pain and suffering, we don't have to isolate. So let's switch gears a little bit and talk about what healing involves. First of all, healing involves cultivating our own ability to be present. When we come into our full experience of our mind, our heart and body, and learn how to stay present within ourselves while attuning to others, we're making a huge step in the direction of collective healing. For most people, this is done by learning to rest inside ourselves. That may sound easy to people who haven't carried a lot of trauma, but for a lot of people, resting inside yourself is not within reach on many days. It's you're anxious, you're shaky, you know, can't get your breath. So 
through contemplative practices, whether they're from Eastern or Western spiritual traditions, walking in the woods, praying, being quiet, making music, doing mantra, just being still in yourself and feeling your body, you can get an insight into who you really are, a part of consciousness, a part of spirit, someone who exists beyond the personality and the identity and beyond the body. Thomas says this is, he calls it resting in the inner space. It helps us to not over-identify with the trauma or to dissociate from it. Being able to feel your body, feel your emotions, and notice your thoughts and bring them into synchronization helps us stay present in our own experience. And then we practice staying with our mind, our body, our spirit, and then staying aware of ourselves as we listen to someone else. What, what you might notice is that then when someone else begins to speak and they're telling a story of some sort, you have a feeling to leave yourself and lean out and help them or respond to them. Or you might have a response to what they're saying that causes you to pull away and contract and get tight. In either situation where you lose self-contact because you're leaning out to help someone else or connect with them, or you lose other contact because what they're saying is too frightening, that's the way the the that we get disconnected from our own experience and from others. And that losing of the connection is difficult to overcome if you're going to process and heal from collective trauma. So we cultivate our ability to be present. I do have one caveat that in some cases, uh, studies have shown that if you have a pre-verbal attachment trauma, like when you were really, really little before you could talk, then sometimes meditating and things like that can be contraindicated. But for most people, meditating and being in the stillness of your inner self and finding a way to rest there is really vital for identifying what's going on in the noisy monkey mind personality layer and what is your true, pure and untouched essence. So the second thing after learning how to rest in the inner space is to be felt and met in relational presence. I will tell you, most self-help guidance starts with the self Peace, and that means you're doing it alone. Many forms of therapy, including collective trauma work, are telling us now that we heal not alone or one-to-one -one or in secrecy, but that we heal in relationships. There's a growing body of work on what's called the social engagement nervous system or polyvagal theory by a guy named Stephen Porges. And that is phenomenal reading. The polyvagal theory, neurophysiological foundations of emotions, attachment, communication, self-regulation by Stephen W. Porges. If you are at all interested in this material, the polyvagal theory, that's an incredible work. It's probably one of the most important things that's happened in psychotherapy in a long time in psycho psychological theory. But what's important there is that it makes it abundantly evident that we are co-regulating each other's nervous systems all of the time and that we are living in a constant current of intersubjective awareness or between people awareness. We are working on each other all of the time. Think about, think about what happens when you're um, in a room and a loud noise goes off. The first thing that you do is like look up, look around, and then make eye contact with other people to see is this something that we should be concerned about. The response of the group, the fear or this or the laughter or whatever it is in other people's faces is part of the way we regulate and understand whether we're safe. And when we're little children, when a big noise like that happens, the first thing we do is look up and look at our parents' face to see if we're safe. 
So, you know, I talked about this before, but if you've got your nose in your phone and your kid's looking for your reassurance and they don't find a place to be met, that mutuality of that regulation will fail and the child will be left to regulate within themselves. And a child that learns how to regulate within themselves um, gets uh, often, often creates a lot of anxiety in, in that body that's carried for the rest of their life. Okay, so first one, cultivate the ability to be present, rest in the inner stillness. The second one, be felt and met in relational presence. And now let's talk about the third one, which is truth telling. So now you know that you're not your personality. It's not your fault. It's not your responsibility. And you are able to talk, to, to understand that you're going to be healing with other people. And what are you going to do in this container? The third thing, truth telling. Man, that is hard. When a trauma happens and it's not able to be met in real time, when it gets repressed and goes underground in the body and often in the mind, it creates secrets and isolations. Let me just restate that. Unshared traumas become secrets and isolations. And secrecy, my friends, is a separation factory. It creates blocks to love and relationship, especially when there is shame around the secret. Because shame makes it difficult to accept love even when it's offered. So, when we can sit in presence with another person who can hold their ground and meet us, or we can do that for someone else, when we can say, tell me how it really was for you, I am listening, in a way that wasn't available when we were first going through the trauma, it begins to lift the old story up and remove the unhelpful adaptations from our bodies and our minds and our spirits. Telling the truth in the presence of someone who is listening and acknowledging is freedom in a moment. Because telling non-truth will get the nervous system aroused in particular ways. Pretending that everything's fine when it's not gets the nervous system aroused. You know, these are even measurable. Think of a lie detector. But the movement of healing through truth-telling is the opposite. It calms the nervous system. You can feel this in a room when someone says something that's true or in a relationship when instead of defending or blaming, someone says what's really true for them. Telling the truth in and of itself is a spiritual and psychobiological healing practice. So those three things are good places to start learning how to sit and rest in our inner space, being felt and met in relational presence, with a group of people or even even a couple of people who are interested in helping each other unwind stories. This is amazing when it can be done with siblings and truth-telling. So when we sit in this presence, we tell our truths to one another, we gradually dissolve these no longer helpful adaptations to trauma, and we allow more presence and vitality to flow through us, which allows us to see the world as it is now because once we remove the fog of our trauma filters, we can be responding from what's happening now, not from old stories of the way things are. Now, I wanna talk a little bit before, you know, as we're, we're kind of closing down this section about exponential processes, you know, that's like when you're first one to the 10th power or whatever, you know, where one action creates a disproportionate ripple effect. So I've been a part of a lot of big group processes. And when a facilitator picks somebody in the audience and they stand up and they do like really 
really strong work in front of the group, like say there's 150 people witnessing a, a process, it's not just that one person who's getting healed. Other observers who resonate with the person's trauma that's sharing are able to heal simultaneously. So just like an individual can gain healing by releasing tensions in their nervous system through being heard, a coherent group of individuals form a kind of collective nervous system that allows material that sits in the collective to express itself and be released. So for example, Thomas does a lot of work with Nazi Germany and you know they'll bring a whole group of people together and they will discuss they'll they'll bring out one person will stand out and bring out how the story of Nazism lives in the family line and anybody else in the room that holds that narrative in their body will respond and he and see what's similar what is shared and will be healed at the same time when a group gets together and they can't work on something like for example, I do a lot of groups with women's stories that are carried across the generations. And some women are so entrained in the cultural overview of what it means to be female uh, that they have sided with the oppressing culture or they can't even go through that feeling tone yet and unwind some of those stories. But some can. We've tried to sit with the story of slavery in America, for example, and Everybody wanted to talk about everything but that story because that story is very, very hard to acknowledge. It un it's, it's very interesting to see when one particular process is getting worked well and what processes are not yet ready to be healed or are not able to be healed. What's exciting to me about the idea of exponential process is that it doesn't mean that 7 billion people have to do it one-on-one. -on -one. The nonlinear nature of collective trauma work opens up the possibility that we can heal at scale, that we can have a simultaneous collective awakening. It, whether it's genocide or slavery or climate dislocation, if we are gonna work with experiences that sit in the fabric of society, we can do it together. I was telling you a little bit about what happens when somebody stands up in a room, like in a group and does a group process. And I want to just talk about kind of what is going on there. Like that facilitator is not doing voodoo magic. They are trained to stay in their presence and power and their peace and presence and power, receive the truth from another person and then meet it with compassion. So the energetic impact of traumas do become visible in the body to a trained observer. For example, you might see someone who has skeletal or muscular contractions and adaptations, like parts of their body that are not energized or have no chi moving through them. This can be imbalances from the left to the right side of the body, from the upper half of the body to the bottom half of the body, from the front to the back. It might show up as their eyes or their gaze being pulled inward or narrowed. It might show up in uh, uneven breathing patterns so a skilled facilitator can scan the physical and energetic body of a person and ask questions about what is happening in your body that can help direct attention and inquiry to trauma that is still held inside of us. If you get a chance, whether it's uh, looking at the body work of Alexander Lowen or Peter Levine or Ida Rolf or Bessel van der Kolk, there, this, this whole field of how the body is holding trauma is called somatic psychotherapy. And 
you, you have places in your body that might be numb or you can't feel. And one simple practice to do is just to feel your own feet on the ground and then just go up and down your body and then notice where you feel and where you don't feel without judgment. Just notice it. Where do I feel things? Where do I not feel things? And to do this scan periodically throughout the day. And then if you do find a dark spot or an unfeeling spot, like kind of go in there with your attention and ask what's happening. Here's another exciting thing before I close today. I subscribe to Nature Magazine, which is like science and nature and all these published studies. And in, in February of this year, the cover had a beautiful image of uh, almost like a cone-shaped uh, scanning network thing that was all glowy and beautiful. And it was uh, about photon avalanching. I read the article. I read the study. In mathematics, avalanching processes are when a cascade of events, a cascade of big events, is triggered by a series of small changes, small perturbations. Nature explains it this way. They said, avalanching processes are found in a wide range of phenomena beyond snow slides, including the popping of champagne bubbles, nuclear explosions, neuronal networking, and even financial crises. Avalanching is an extreme example of a nonlinear process in which a change in input or excitation leads to a disproportionate, often disproportionately large, change in output signal. Okay, so avalanche. Small thing happens, huge impact, kind of like grows and expands on itself. In photon avalanches in their cover story, when a crystal absorbs a single photon, many more photons are admitted than the one it absorbed. It multiplies. And nature says this about photon avalanches. The absorption of just a single photon leads not only to a large number of emitted photons, but also to a surprising property. The emitted photons are upconverted, each one higher in energy, that is bluer in color, than the single absorbed photon initially. Okay, come on. The poet scientist in me loves this because one particle of light goes in and multiplies and up levels and spreads the light until the edges of a thing are glowing impossibly bright. One light, then all light. That's amazing. And that's what I think is happening in the collective healing container. It's like a crystal that magnifies and upconverts the light and spreads it rapidly to others. I theorize that because consciousness is not local, that when you or me absorb a concept wholly and understand why it matters, that we transmit it rapidly to others in the field, even without saying it with words. And I don't think it's just collective healing that works this way. I think social change is an avalanche phenomenon. Universal love is an avalanche phenomenon. Forgiveness is an avalanche phenomenon. And even in the work that I did when I was writing my book on social justice movements, Small changes spark large and planetary movements. So begin, just begin where you are. Is there a story or multiple stories that live in your family that are available for transformation? Thank you for joining me today on this introduction to collective trauma. Here's a question for you. What is one family or cultural story that you are holding that it would be helpful to let go of? One story that you are holding that it would be helpful to let go of. 
If I was to sit down with you and stay in my presence and listen to you, tell me how it was for you so that you could get it out of your system, pass the energy through and feel a release that let you be more free, what story would you tell me? You can reach me on Instagram at rosebudwoman or at the.rose.woman. And if you like this episode, do me a favor and pause, copy the link and text it right now to someone who would benefit from it. And check the show notes for links to great books and articles so that you can learn more. This is a massive and important topic for the whole world. See you next time on The Rose Woman. Rose Woman.